Hi, this is Paul Starr with another podcast for the Princeton course, Law, Institutions, and Public Policy. This week, we're talking about judicial institutions, and we begin with a classic article in the Sociology of Law by Mark Galanter, Why the Haves Come Out Ahead. Galanter published this article in 1974, a time when there was great interest in public interest law, litigation on behalf of consumers, minorities, tenants, the poor, and others who generally had little effective legal representation. One of the leaders of public interest law in those days was a lawyer named Ralph Nader, who gained public attention for his work on auto safety, and then expanded into other areas, creating a series of groups known as Nader's Raiders. In the early 1970s, while I was still in graduate school, I directed one of those groups, investigating the federal response to soldiers returning from the Vietnam War. I wrote a book about that called The Discarded Army, published in 1974, the same year as Galanter's article. Many of us hoped at that time that public interest litigation, cases brought on behalf of groups like consumers and veterans, could help create a more just and equal society. Galanter's Why the Haves Comes Out Ahead provides a sobering analysis of what he refers to in the subtitle as the limits of legal change. As he says, he's concerned with how the architecture of the legal system creates and limits the possibilities for equality. His basic question is, can litigation be redistributive? The reason why Galanter's article has been so enduring is that instead of focusing on the circumstances of the moment, the article provides an analysis of legal systems that illuminates the systematic patterns of advantage and disadvantage of different parties. Galanter's, Galanter begins by identifying four components to legal systems. One, authoritative norms, for short, rules. Two, a set of institutional facilities, for short, courts. Three, a body of specialized personnel, for short, lawyers. And four, persons or groups who may make claims to the courts in reference to the rules, for short, parties. Now, earlier in the semester, for example, when we considered the work of H.L.A. Hart, we began with rules of different types, acknowledging that they don't always govern what happens in practice. Galanter reverses the usual sequence in analyzing law. Instead of beginning with rules, he focuses on the different kinds of parties and the effect these differences might have on the way the system works. Here, drawing on game theory, he makes a crucial distinction. He divides claimants into two groups. One, those who have only occasional recourse to the courts, whom he calls one-shotters, and two, repeat players, who are engaged in many similar legal disputes over time. Of course, there's really a spectrum of claimants, but for purposes of analytical clarity, Galanter uses these two polar categories as ideal types. One-shotters in the legal system are people who go to court rarely. For example, in a divorce case or a custody case or, or when they have suffered an injury. Going to court may cause them 
tremendous anxiety and considerable cost. Most people don't anticipate legal bills in their family budget. In some cases, and this is crucial, the tangible outcome of the case may be high relative to their finances. In other words, the money at stake really matters for them. The repeat players, frequent litigators like big companies, are typically in a different situation. Galanter enumerates, enumerates a series of their advantages. I'm only going to mention a few of them. Okay, one, repeat players, having done it before, have advanced intelligence. They're able to structure the next transaction and build a record. It is the repeat player who writes the form contract, requires the security deposit, and the like. So remember reading about contract by Raiden at the very beginning of the semester? Those one-sided contracts were a perfect example of the point that Galanter is making. Okay, number two, repeat players develop expertise and have ready access to specialists. They enjoy economies of scale and have low startup costs for any case. Think of a case where a one-shotter sues a big company. While the one-shotter will typically get a local lawyer with little specialized knowledge, the company probably has lawyers on retainer experienced in exactly the areas of law where it regularly needs representation. Now I'm going to skip to point number five, which is an example of how Galanter draws on game theory. Number five, repeat players can play the odds. The larger the matter at issue looms for the one-shotter, the more likely the one-shotters are to adapt a minimax strategy, that is, minimizing the probability of maximum loss. Assuming that the stakes are relatively small for repeat players, they can adopt strategies calculated to maximize gain over a long series of cases, even where this involves the risk of maximum loss in some cases. The sixth and seventh advantages Galanter lists are crucial. Number six, repeat players can play for rules as well as immediate gains. It pays for repeat players to expend resources and influence the making of rules by such methods as lobbying. And of course, repeat players' accumulated expertise gives them an advantage in doing that lobbying more persuasively. Point number seven, repeat players can also play for rules in litigation itself, whereas a one-shotter is unlikely to, because the stakes the one -shotter, uh, for the one-shotter and the immediate outcome are high, and because by definition, one-shotters are unconcerned with the outcome of similar litigation in the future, one-shotters will have little interest in that element of the outcome, which might influence the disposition of the decision-maker the next time around. So here we have a critical point. Repeat players play for rules, the rules component of outcomes, because legal cases may establish precedents in a common law system. One-shotters, on the other hand, play for the tangible component of outcomes. They want satisfaction of their claims. The money really matters to them. The rules, much less. In other words, repeat players have a stake in shaping institutions that will affect their gains and losses 
over the long term. So who is likely to drive the evolution of institutions? Repeat players. Galanter isn't saying this difference alone explains legal evolution. He writes, I'm just going to quote now, of course, it's not suggested that the, strategy, that the strategic configuration of the parties is the sole or major determinant of rule development. Rule development is shaped by a relatively autonomous learned tradition, by the impingement of intellectual currents from outside, by the preferences and prudences of the decision makers. But courts are passive, and these factors operate only when the process is triggered by parties. The point here is merely to note the superior opportunities of the repeat player to trigger promising cases and prevent the triggering of unpromising ones. Okay, let's just reflect for a moment on that last point, triggering promising cases and preventing the triggering of unpromising ones. Repeat players care about precedent, so they may go to court when they see an opportunity to establish a favorable precedent. But when a case looks like it might establish a precedent unfavorable to their interests, repeat players have an incentive to settle. What's the net result? Precedents will probably favor repeat players. Now take a look at figure one from the article, which I've copied onto the list of key terms for this week. This figure shows various combinations of one-shotters and repeat players. On the horizontal axis, the figure has the initiators of claims, the claimants, and on the vertical axis, there are the defendants. Box two in the upper right, the repeat player initiator versus the one-shotter defendant, includes, as Galanta writes, the great bulk of litigation. That's the situation where you've got the prosecutor versus the accused, finance company versus a debtor, a landlord versus a tenant. In these cases, the initiator generally has the advantage of experience and is going to court for what are, from the repeat payers, player's perspective, the routine processing of claims. The state of the law, Galanta writes, is of interest to the repeat player, though not to the one-shotter defendant. Box three in the lower left. The one-shotter initiator versus repeat player defendant is the reverse situation. Galanter notes that these are rather infrequent types, except for personal injury cases, which are distinctive in that free entry to the arena is provided by the contingent fee. A contingent fee is a fee based on a percentage of damages awarded, which lawyers get only if they win their case. Now, not all legal systems allow contingent fees. The U.S. system does. It evens up the odds a little, which is why corporations hate trial lawyers. In contrast to boxes two and three, boxes one and four in that diagram we represent more equally matched parties. One-shotter versus one-shotter in box two, repeat player versus repeat player in box four. Box one, for example, includes divorce cases in cases where family members are fighting over an inheritance. Box four includes cases involving corporations suing each other, or unions versus companies, or regulatory agencies versus regulated firms. In general, cases in box one and box four get into court only when 
informal methods of settling disputes have failed. I'm not going to go into equal detail into the three other components of legal systems, lawyers, courts, and rules. But here are a few points to take note of. On lawyers, repeat players generally have the advantages of specialized counsel. As Galanta writes, most specializations in law cater to the needs of particular kinds of repeat players. Those specialists who serve one-shotters have some distinctive features. What are they? Well, they tend to make up the lower echelons of the legal profession. And the episodic and limited nature of these lawyers' relationships with their clients results in a kind of formulaic representation, not geared so much to the specifics of the case. And even when there is a specialized bar on the one-shotter's side that helps make up <clears throat> for the usual deficit in expertise, I'm quoting here Galanta now, this is short of overcoming the fundamental strategic advantages of repeat players, their capacity to structure the transaction, play the odds, and influence rule development and enforcement policy. Turning to institutional facilities, that is the courts, Galanter points to two key features, passivity and overload, that work to the advantage, again, of the repeat player. First, the courts are passive in the sense that claimants must come to them, giving the advantage to claimants who have better knowledge, skill in dealing with procedures, and resources to bring cases. And second, chronic overload, that is long backlogs of cases pending resolution create delays in adjudicating, and raise the costs of keeping a case alive. To quote Galanter on the implications, the overload situation means that there are more commitments in the formal system than there are resources to honor them, more rights and rules on the books than can be vindicated or enforced. There are then questions of priorities in the allocation of resources, we would expect judges, police, administrators, and other managers of limited institutional facilities to be responsive to the more organized, attentive, and influential of their constituents. Again, these tend to be repeat players. Finally, on rules. Galanter argues that the same bias prevails. Rules, he says, tend to favor older, culturally dominant interests. It's not meant to imply that the rules are explicitly designed to favor those interests, but rather that those groups which have become dominant have successfully articulated their operations to pre-existing rules. A figure three, also reproduced in the look for, listen for list, sums up the ways in which the four components of legal systems, parties, lawyers, institutional facilities, and rules, create advantages enjoyed mostly by repeat players. If Galanter had stopped at this point, he would have already given us a great deal to think about. But he goes further. In part five of the article, he explores alternatives to the official system for resolving claims. After mentioning inaction and withdrawal as responses, he turns to two other options for handling claims, which vary according to their relationship to the legal system. The first, which he shows in figure four, are what he calls appended dispute settlement systems. Appended in the sense that they're adjuncts to the official system. 
for example, court supervised settlements, such as plea bargains. And the second, which he shows in figure five, are private remedy systems, which include various kinds of institutional grievance and dispute settlement procedure. Galanta's concern here is partly how these systems affect one-shotters versus repeat players, and what is likely to drive claims out of the legal system into one of these alternatives. I encourage you to read over this part of the analysis. Finally, the last part of Galanter's article takes up four types of equalizing reform that run in parallel with the components of the legal system he's been analyzing all along. These are one, rule change, two, improvements in institutional facilities, three, improvement of legal services in quantity and quality, and four, the reorganizing of parties so as to improve the strategic position of the have-nots. Other writers on the subject of equality in the law would emphasize rule change, whether through legislation or litigation. Galanter's emphasis is different. He writes, quoting him, even where have-nots secure favorable changes at the rule level, they may not have the resources to secure the penetration of those rules, that is, the adoption of practices in line with the rules. The impotence of rule change, whatever its source, is particularly pronounced when there is a reliance on the unsophisticated one-shotters to utilize favorable new rules. Instead, Galanter stresses the crucial importance of changing the organization or position of the parties. For example, by aggregating one-shotters into organizations that are repeat players through class action suits and the use of test cases, the very strategies emphasized by public interest litigation. For people who are interested in using the law for redistributive change, this is the key takeaway. And here I'm quoting Galanter, changes at the level of parties are most likely to generate changes at other levels. Well, that was Galanter's argument in 1974. What's happened since then? Pretty much the opposite. Class action suits have been severely restricted. Indeed, the ability of one-shotters to go to court has been severely restricted through mandatory arbitration. Many areas of the law have been privatized. Jury trials have been disappearing. Equal protection of the law is the promise of our Constitution. Whether one-shotters, who are, after all, the great majority of people, get the law's equal protection is another matter entirely.